As you know, it's important to me that the supplements I recommend and use are of the highest quality. That's why I stock the Protocol for Life Balance product line at my online dispensary. Protocol for Life Balance offers a wide range of professional-grade products using ingredients backed by strong scientific research. Among them, several stand out for their support of aging healthfully, PQQ, glutathione, and alpha-lipoic acid. PQQ helps support your heart and brain function and promotes robust cellular energy production. Glutathione supports proper cellular detoxification and healthy immune function, and alpha-lipoic acid helps maintain your neural health and helps preserve optimal blood flow. Each of these products takes its own unique approach to neutralizing free radicals and protecting us from oxidative stress as we age. They're only available from healthcare practitioners, but they're available to you at drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. That's drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance for more information and to order. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today we're going to deal with an ambitious question, which is we're going to tell you how to eat. Well, we're not going to tell you how to eat. We're going to give you some tools on how you can reset your eating. That's the title of a brand new book entitled Reset Eating. Reset your health and resilience by turning what and how you eat into powerful medicine. With us is one of the co-authors. Rob Furkirk, he's a PhD and he is uh, executive director of A&H International, the Alliance for Natural Health International. Do I have your credentials correct? You've got it right, yep. Founder, executive and scientific director. Indeed, and uh, a prolific uh, author who with uh, Melanie Aldridge and Melissa Smith compiled uh, this wonderful practical book. And so uh, without further ado, uh, here's Rob for Kirk. So, uh, Rob, uh, tell us what got you started on such an ambitious project because there's so many books that tell us how to eat, you know, this diet, that diet, that, you know, the other diet, uh, you know, had to paraphrase the uh, Passover questions. How is this book different from all other books? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of books that tell you what to eat. There are definitely fewer that tell you how to eat. And what they don't really do very much on is explain the most intimate relationship that we have with our environment, which is the relationship we have with food. And so what we're looking at is the, the, the wider picture of not only, we've got some incredibly practical stuff in there, um, including a whole bunch of recipes. Um, but what we are, the fundamental point of it is understanding that it is the mismatch between the way we tend to eat food in this day and age that's driving the whole series of metabolic diseases from type 2 diabetes, obesity, um, heart disease, etc. And there's and a lot about accessible science in this, you know, just sort of practical knowledge about physiology and how the body works and how things go awry in this that explain why we've gotten into such trouble. Exactly. And, you know, if you, if you look at, for example, at um, blood sugar as one marker that, that every doctor has been measuring for, for donkey's years, um, what we often don't get to is how do we move to what we really want as a result of um, blood sugar regulation of the human body? 
And that takes us to this concept of metabolic flexibility, which is um, not just about your relationship with food, it's also about your lifestyle. It's how you interact physical movement with what you're eating, when you're eating, how you're eating. So even, for example, the fact that many people will eat in a chronically stressed um, you know, state because they're watching the news, they're doing emails, um, they're distracted. They are still in a sympathetic autonomic nervous system mm. state. And, uh, you know, and we, we, we've heard an awful lot in the last couple of years about actually uh, being in this chronically stressed, sympathetic state. Um, we don't talk so much about um, being in the rest and digest mode. We, we, we know fight and flight is where we shouldn't be. But this, is, this book, what it does is help people to regain metabolic flexibility. And to do that, um, we do need to be in a rested state. So the idea of sitting down around tables in a relaxed situation with perhaps some nice music and even, dare I say, some candlelight is a pretty good idea. And that's falling out of favor. Um, and of course, the other thing that's happened with loss of metabolic flexibility is the, the pathways, the beta oxidation pathways that get us to burn fat, this, mm -hmm. this fuel reserve we carry beneath our skin, some of us carrying too much of it. Um, and so this is not a weight loss book, this is not a diet book, right? But, we don't, it's, it's an eating... It's, a side effect of eating the right way can be to optimize weight. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a really... I mean, metabolic flexibility, um, Ron, you'll know the, the ecological terrain mapping system that we've been developing over the last decade as a way of looking at human interaction in a given human's environment. And, um, and actually, our, while our first domain of the 12 domains that we um, measure to look at key functions, um, the first one is, is genetics and epigenetics. So um, what our book of life is and how that book of life is expressed according to its environment. The second one is metabolic flexibility as a key focus, because if we can get, if we understand our genotype and our genetic expression patterns, we then need to deal with metabolic flexibility simply because not only in the industrialized world, but increasingly in all cultures that are eating too often at the wrong time in the wrong way, so is, we're losing flexibility. That there's a, sort of a genetic blueprint that uh, gives us a heads up on personalized nutrition. In other words, this book is this this book is not per se a low carb book. This book is not a per se a vegan or plant based book. Uh, it opens the lens to uh, per individualized nutrition. Correct. And and so I mean in it will includes our work um, on looking at what an optimal plate might look like for a day's eating. You're aware that um, you know my plate in the USA Food eat well. Yeah, my plate. Yeah, eat well in, in in the UK. These systems have been developed as a compromise with big food. Right. Um, and um, you sit around a table and various interests competing rather than and one says, "No, don't tell them not to eat meat." And the other group says, "Wait a minute, we're 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 making flour and wheat, and you know yeah. we don't want people to stop eating bread." And we've and been then the dairy industry chimes in. Yeah, right? and we've had a nickname for those plates for many years, and they, we call them diabetes plates because they diabetes <laughs> diabetes they, they right. give you both type two diabetes and obesity. Right. Because when you look at the studies of how people are eating, it's amazing. Most of them are actually eating that kind of a way. 
So you've got to then relook at what it is about what we're eating and how we're eating and when we're eating, and say, right, right. let's apropos, see what we need. Apropos, what is the? In, I think uh, England and the UK track pretty much with uh, North America in terms of uh, degenerative diseases due to poor dietary habits. I mean, perhaps mm. it's it's a, we're a little ahead of the game. Obesity statistics are worse in the United States, but England is. Close runner-up. Yeah. Uh, what are the biggest problems with the way people eat in the West these days? Um, I, th I think if I was going to put one um, type of food at the top, it would be um, lack of consumption of food made from whole foods in the home. So. So the fact that the fact that we've um, got used to largely eating foods with different degrees of processing mm -hmm. for which we don't have control of many of the ingredients that go into them. Right. So, you know, when you get a hummus or even a guacamole from a supermarket, or check out a health food store. Yeah, or a health check out what else is in there. Right. And so you'll find there's generally refined seed oils, um, you know, that are very, very low grade foods. Emulsifiers. Um, yeah. Additives, preser preservatives, you know, creating preserved foods. I mean, we've, we've, this is very well known now with preserved meats. Um, if you look at any of this sort of air-cured traditional meats, that they don't have nitrites in them. Nitrites convert to nitrosoamine compounds, and that's one of the reasons that we now know that these preserved meats um, are classified by the International but Agency for Research and Cancer. <laughs> you, right? ba bangers are sausages. Bangers yeah. and mash. Yeah, bangers, bangers are sausages and can, of course, be very healthy if they're made with. Um, oh, so so you so you're actually open to uh, a more wholesome, natural version of these 100 percent considered bad. Hundred percent, like nitrate-free bacon. The, the 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 principle of a banger is that we used to use you know intestinal casings, natural right. casings. That are loaded with nucleotides. We all understand the benefits of, of, of broths because the, the the umami flavor that we like so much when we make a broth is actually coming from these this group of micronutrients called nucleotides. In Jewish cuisine, that's called kishkas, exactly. and, it's a, and it's a dish. Yeah. It's kishkas, and like, what's in this? This is delicious. Oh, it's intestine. Exactly. Oh. All all the offals. I mean, we, I've actually. Uh, done the key development work for developing an ADI for nucleotides for the European Food Safety Authority because we helped nucleotides become a recognized category of dietary supplement in, in Europe. And so we actually had to analyze where are nucleotides currently in the diet, what foods and, have and most. By the way, they're the building blocks for all that RNA that's so popular in the vaccines, but yes. the, you actually can consume them and generate them yeah. in your body. So, so they, they are what we call... They're repair things. Yeah, they, they are what we call conditionally essential nutrients. Okay. So we, we've got a strange... This is something we need to rewrite. We talk about it in the book, that, that there are a group of 13 vitamins and 15 minerals that we call essential vitamins and minerals. Why do we call them essential? Because the body can't produce them, so we need to take them in from the outside. We then got this intermediate group that we call semi-essential or conditionally essential nutrients. That includes, um, for example, uh, EPA, um, omega-3 fatty acid, 
but it also includes nucleotides. It includes the non, the semi-essential well, amino acids. Like carnitine. Exactly. We can synthesize it, but sometimes people yeah. have insufficient amounts. Yeah. So, so with when it comes to nucleotides, obviously the pyrimidines and purines are the, the key groups, and we'll know about purines. Anyone who understands hyperuricemia and gout will know that it's an excess of, of purines that we can't metabolize fully. But we don't think very often about the pyrimidines. And what nature does is gives us this beautiful balance of pyrimidines and purines in offal meats. And, um, not, and also... A-W-E-F-U-L, it's O-F-F-A-L. Yes, yes. It sounds awful, <laughs> but it's that whole nose-to-tail concept. And exactly, Ab- absolutely. So, um, so key times of growth. So you may know that in the 1980s, it became compulsory globally to add nucleotides to infant formula. When everyone complained that powdered milk being given to babies was different from, from, from human milk, one of the key factors was the, the fact that there is so much growth going on that the body cannot keep up with the cellular turnover division yes. rate. So for one carbon metabolism, metabolism, we need lots of folate, but we also need nucleotides. And then we've got transplant patients are always need to be put on nucleotides as well. I think there's a, there's a surgical formula, I don't know if it's used in England, but it's called IMPACT, and it's omega-3 and RNA. There you go. And for surgical patients so that they recover better. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so they can synthesize protein in repairing wounds. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly right. But also, if, you, if you've got a transplant, because the um, immune system, when you have an immune challenge, produces so many new immune cells, we also need additional additional nucleotides and of course we've got a de novo pathway so we can produce a small amount in the body we've got a salvage pathway which means we can um, break down and pull nucleotides out of broken cells before we excrete them Um, but we also need dietary sources so um, and offal meats um, and the other big categories fermented foods now yes thank goodness fermented foods kombucha you know kimchi etc are um, live yogurts are, are coming into the diet increasingly, but there's still a shed load of people out there who yeah. have very little. And there's, interestingly, there is a very British product that we found the highest level of nucleotides. Marmite? Yes! Oh, yeah. <laughs> five, five, yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I was introduced to that on a kibbutz in Israel, okay. which happened to be a bunch of British Jews who came to Israel. And I was like 18 years old and I volunteered on the kibbutz and they, they, the bread was spread with this brown stuff that was very yeasty. Yes, right? That's correct. I mean, Saccharomyces cerevisiae uh-huh. for, for most, most of the naturally produced, because you can produce nucleotides synthetically, but um, naturally produced come from brewer's yeast, baker's yeast. And, uh, but, but yeah, so we, we need to understand why in traditional forms of cooking. Another um, area that we look at is you know, yes, people be encouraged to eat more and more of a plant-based diet, but plants contain a bunch of secondary compounds right, that are pesticides. Yeah, we do. Anti-nutrients. Yeah. Yep. So, so, you know, if you look, for example, at the push for people who consume less meat tend to be obviously deficient in protein, and they need to make it up primarily from eating more legumes, um, beans, pulses, etc. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty we have with, particularly with beans, um, beans more than pulses, is, is the fact that the lectin levels can be extremely high. And you'll know 
the kidney bean store, you can pretty much kill yourself with kidney beans uh, that are not properly cooked. Beans, beans, the musical fruit, and the rest. Yes, you know exactly. So, so if you look at a traditional system of cooking um, for, say, an Indian cookery, um, you'll be slow cooking your beans or your pulses for about six hours. Oh. If you measure the lectins, it takes about, dare I say, six hours to get rid of them. So you, you talk to people about how to uh, minimize exposure to these things. Exactly. And of course, the pressure cooker, not the microwave oven, but the pressure cooker, the very thing that many people took out of their yeah. kitchens in the West when the microwave came in, is the very thing you need to yeah. break down lectins. And actually, you can do the same job. We all use it in the kitchen, but um, 30 to 40 minutes you've got no lectins in, left in, in your beans. So, and it also increases protein digestibility. So um, my, the, the uh, pressure cooker is a great addition to anyone's kitchen. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Mm. Uh, you know, we are now in, hopefully entering the post-COVID era, although uh, a lot of people concerned about COVID, they continue to be concerned about COVID. Um, the, um, so the question is, what are the lessons of uh, the COVID era for uh, diet? What are the implications? And why is this a good time to be telling people to do a reset? Well, this um, interesting virus that we've been um, working with, dodging, um, or uh, accepting into our bodies and dealing with, um, has been something of a teacher in the sense that it has shone a spotlight on metabolic diseases. And um, it's interesting that we still tend to um, try and kill the pathogen. We're still very Pasteurian in our approach. Use a drug. Exactly, exactly. Um, what we don't do so well is think about the terrain. And ultimately, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that people who have a terrain, one in which they are not metabolically flexible. In other words, metabolic flexibility in brief terms is the ability to be able to switch your fuel source. So rem remember that the food you eat, your macronutrients, whether they contain, whether they're protein-based, carbohydrate or fats, they aren't the energy. The energy our body uses, of course, is ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So they're energy carriers. But we also have a fourth energy carrier in the form of ketones. Um, and um, so someone who is metabolically flexible uses the optimal energy carrier. It's like a hybrid car, you know, it can go, it's exactly that. You can go when you run out of uh, charge, you can switch to yeah. the gas tank as yeah. an auxiliary. So, so an example would be, um, you know, uh, Ron, you and I, we like to turn the pedals of these things called bicycles. Yeah. Um, so, we were giving you know, each other uh, last night. Yeah, exactly. So, so the average person who's had a reasonably good meal the night before will carry carbohydrate, stored carbohydrate in the form of glycogen in their liver and skeletal muscle that will take them about 90 minutes to burn if they're taking an average amount of exercise, um, walking fairly fast, rambling, cycling a bike, etc. Um, interesting thing, if you're metabolically flexible, when you get to the end of that glycogen reserve, you don't go, Christ, give me one of those gels. Right. The body goes, hello, I'm going to now switch You've, you've got this, your long-range fuel tank in the form of adipose tissue. I'm going to switch my system to start burning fat. Um, and, um, and then if you continue to do it in the absence of carbohydrate intake... So how do you cultivate that kind of resilience? 
everyone comes into this world with the ability to do, to do it. What we have to understand is more that what do you have to do to lose it? Um, so the best keto-adapted individuals I know about are young babies. Measure the beta-hydroxybutyrate. Why? Because if the, if, the, if the baby didn't have the mother to feed milk to it, the baby would die. So we come into this world as amazingly metabolically flexible. We then lose it because we start feeding our bubs with loads and loads of carbohydrate. Right. Um, and I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing, but you can start to see in some people, and this is why it's so important to in individualize the process, in some people, particularly the people who are develop developing metabolic diseases, that fuel tank around the outside, the best measure of it is central adiposity, grab the side of your uh, flank and your, your tummy and see how much additional weight you're carrying around the middle. Or the unseen, uh, the, sort of the, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, the visceral fat, the visceral, visceral fat inside. The, yeah, absolutely. The underwater yeah. submerged part of the iceberg. Exactly. So, so we should then be able to switch to burning that, that adipose tissue. And again, if we, um, you know, if you look at any of the real ultra marathon runners or cyclists, um, they are extremely efficient. This is the work that people like um, Dr. Jeff Volek has been a leader on to help, to, yeah, to help people get into what we call nutritional ketosis, where your body is producing um, a plasma level between uh, about um, 0.5 and 3 millimolar per liter of beta-hydroxybutyrate. And you so can you turn into a lean, mean, fat-burning machine. You got it. Yeah. You, you absolutely have it. And that should be completely natural because from an evolutionary point of view we are adapted to famine yeah. we're not adapted to feast so the if you look at the complex pathways mTOR um, for example that, that regulates energy um, storage and usage um, that goes out of whack mm -hmm. and then you know we can't shuffle we can't burn the fats we can't shuttle them into the mitochondria and so we need to teach our bodies to do that. And one of the mechanisms, that, and, and we were just talking about it this morning because of the new paper that's out on, on it, is eating less often. Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of using terminology that suggests that we've got to do things differently because we've just got to get to a natural pattern of eating again. Mm -hmm. Eating three main meals a day and lots of snacks in between is not normal for or, um, or genetic background term time restricted eating or yeah time. so so what we are great fans of this idea of of understanding how an individual can extend the interval between meals to take snacking out of the equation to try and go at least five hours between meals um, and you know when you get hungry and you want to push yourself into nutritional ketosis you learn um, about having snacks that don't contain carbohydrate. And, um, and so what we deal with in the book is we actually have um, uh, guidelines for people who are flexitarian, which is the, the choice I personally make. Um, but we also... What define that? that? Someone who's a flexitarian is, is someone who um, relies heavily on eating a diverse range of plants, but also meats. Mm. Um, and um, in that sense, what, what we carry throughout the book is this um, reducing the reliance on processed foods. So 
where and and also reducing the reliance on foods from industrial food production systems so um, decentralizing your source of foods trying to buy from the farm gate um, eating um, animal products that are not from industrial production systems uh, are all a pretty key part of that sometimes that can be a more important part of it than um, we guaranteeing organic food and environmental implications as well correct correct yeah. and, and of course this this um, big pressure against meat um, is misinformed both environmentally and from a health perspective but the health perspective is easier to deal with in terms of looking at the evolutionary origin and adaptations of humans quite clear that you know we miss out on a number of amino acids a number of essential fatty acids and a number of um, key minerals when we don't eat right. um, meat. Sort of the leap from uh, tree, tree growth, tree, tree residing primates to uh, sentient humans uh, or bipedal walking on two feet on you know flat ground with larger brains and tool making and language capacity was partially due to an adaptation to consume more animal protein. Correct, correct, and 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 we were largely coastal. So you know if, if we look at something like zinc. Um, yeah, shellfish, that, and, and of course even the zinc that we're getting in animal foods. Yeah, um, and then obviously the B12, which is which is pretty critical um, to get from animal sources, but obviously you can derive it um, elsewhere. And the, so the, the, this sort of vegan push, which is also associated with um, new technologies such as lab-grown meats that people like Bill Gates are very involved in. Right. Um, uh, tends to give us this impression that all meat is bad for the environment and if you look even at WHO or uh, I should say UN data from the FAO um, you'll see that um, eating sheep uh, eating chickens is produces way less carbon emissions that's before you've even looked at carbon sequestration in the, in the, in the ground mm -hmm. than eating rice or wheat Mm -hmm. So, um, because it's an industrial process, it requires a lot of fuel yeah. uh, to make the fertilizer. We forget about that. The, yeah. the fertilizer is a petrochemical derivative, and then there's all the machinery that's required in harvesting. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to transport it from uh, you know the Central Valley in California to uh, Maine and to uh, Florida, and you know so on. So exactly. So, so beef looks really bad when you look at the the, the official data on beef. Mm -hmm. However. We know that it's not the beef cattle that are the problem because we can look at specific beef production systems and a good example would be Aberdeen Angus um, steak from Scotland. If we look at that beef production system, it's already carbon neutral. It's so, regenerative, it's grass-fed, yeah. and the nutrient composition is superior. And I think you talk about that in the book. We do, yeah. So eating these marble meats, um, really a gr fed, great idea. Yeah. But, it, but it does mean that this concept of eating red meat per se to be good to the environment does not yeah. make sense. What it means is we shouldn't be eating from industrial farming systems such as the classic sort of high-intensity Texan beef system. It's um, a selling point for a new new uh, lucrative technology, you know, to correct, correct. supplant previous technology. Fo focus on a problem um, uh, and deliver a solution that yeah. works every time. All right, good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And in part two, uh, we're going to discuss more about uh, the book. And our guest is one of the co-authors, Rob Furkirk. Uh, he is a PhD and, uh, get your title right, scientific director. And uh, actually, 
it's fair to say you're the founder of yeah. A&H International, which is the um, across the pond group that is in league with A&H-USA, A&H-USA.org, uh, organization that we both belong to. And um, it, the, the effort is to uh, get people to embrace a healthier lifestyle overall, and eating is fundamental to that. The book is Reset Eating, and it's available from the usual sources, Rob? It certainly is. Yeah, you can just go to the, the, uh, the Amazon store in the U.S., and it's just available. It's a beautiful book. The graphics are terrific, and the recipes scrumptious, and it's just really wonderful. So, when we return, I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.